your head Maybe listen to someone else instead Hello listeners, you're listening to the podcast Not Knowing About Poetry and I'm Joel Swan. Today I'm so pleased to be joined for the second time by Leo Cookman. Today we will once again be sitting here exhibiting our literary inadequacies for all to see. So sit tight and get set for some useful chat. Today we're going to be looking at Macbeth by William Shakespeare and a poem responding to that play by U.A. Fanthorpe. While as always I feel apologetic for talking about yet another Shakespeare play, this coupling does help us to engage with a particular kind of literature that this podcast hasn't really explored so far. What we're opening the lid on today is a kind of poetic writing where poets use the texts of the past, not just to find inspiration or motivation, but to make some kind of answer to the all too obvious political shortcomings of the traditions of canonical literature. I would love to get a handle on the full range of this genre, which surely includes, for example, responses to Andrew, Andrew Marvell's Coy Mistress by A.D. Hope and Anne Finch, some of the re-readings of Shakespeare's sonnets compiled in volumes uh, printed by Arden and telephone books, and Paul Muldoon's long poem called From His Mistress Going to Bed, based on the Dunn elegy of the same name. I would know, I'm dishing out all these names, not because I know about them very well, but because they're all areas that I would love to get into more in future episodes of this podcast. And there must be lots more obvious examples that both of us on this podcast today are ignorant of. Please don't be shy about letting us know on Twitter. So these poetic instances I've given are, of course, only a small part of creative reimaginings of historical literature in the late 20th century. Um, and UA Fanthorpe writing in the early 90s, um, we could perhaps place this aspect of her work somewhere amongst the explicitly feminist work of Angela Carter in The Bloody Chamber that came out in 1978 and um, really powerful and influential book. Um, and on the other hand, something like Carol Ann Duffy's The World's Wife of 1999, which featured poems in the voice of Mrs. Tiresias, Mrs. Faust, Anne Hathaway, and a host of other historical and literary figures. So we'll get to these texts as a matter of urgency, but let's just say something about U.A. Fanthorpe, who's a poet I haven't heard a lot about. You don't hear people talking about her, but I do find strangely compelling. Leo, I feel like she has had plenty of fame, like in her time. You know, she's 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 dead now. Is she a name that you've heard of before, or have you uh, encountered her work before we started talking about this discussion? I'd, I'd never heard her name before, to be honest. Uh, I know you mentioned she's been on some syllabuses certain uh, curriculum and stuff, but I, not a name I'd ever come across, I'm afraid. 
Right. And um, yeah, I, I only came across it because um, I stumbled across the, the book that we're going to be looking at um, while someone I know was clearing out some books, some of their A-level books. Um, so this was this is a poet who's important enough to have been on an A-level syllabus at some point, whatever uh, importance you, you attach to that, um, but hadn't entered my, my knowledge or experience. So, so obviously that provoked my interest and, you know, I feel that's been rewarded um, with her good writing. Let's just say something about her in that case, because maybe less familiar figure. So um, Fanthorpe, she was born, UA Fanthorpe, she was born in 1929 in Bromley, Southeast London, major residential suburb of, of London. Uh, so she would have experienced the suburban traumas of the Second World War as a child growing up. She went on to study English at Oxford and then became an English teacher in Cheltenham, where she met her lifelong partner, Rosemary Bailey. And maybe one reason I'm interested in Fanthorpe, she's one of these good poets who's also a teacher, who, who trained as a teacher and spent years as that. Um, how many people are in that category? D.H. Lawrence, any others on the top of your head? R.F. Langley, he was a teacher. No idea. <laughs> okay, well, that's another, another word file that I need to get started, another podcast. <laughs> uh, just as she was starting to get some real acclaim as a poet in the 1970s, she left teaching to become a receptionist at the Burden Neurological Institute near Bristol, a position she held for some 15 years. So again, you know, she's got this interesting professional life, wide range of experiences of talking to people, of interacting with people from a wide range of backgrounds. I think that only enhances the, the poetry she was creating. It was only by the 90s when she, that she really became sort of recognized and acclaimed as a poet, uh, which was expressed, for example, through her nomination for the Oxford Professorship of Poetry, I think in 1994. And there was at one point some talk about her becoming Poet Laureate as well, but she wasn't. When we get into her poetry, when I started reading her poetry, I realised there was clearly a case to talk about her in this, in the context of this podcast themes of thinking about what contemporary poets get from Mason's poetry, because she does give a sustained attention to texts of the past. And in the collection that we're looking at today called Safe as Houses, um, it includes um, a long poem about Tyndale's translation of the Bible, for example, unusual topic. Um, it, it includes quotations from the prose of Thomas Brown, an unusual writer to uh, draw attention to as a contemporary poet. Um, elsewhere, she's written about Ben Jonson, the, the playwright. So um, lots of interest in early modern texts. Um, you know, surely an interesting person for us to, to look into. So we will start with a scene from Macbeth, um, a play that I, I'm not planning to introduce at length here because of its extreme fame and its extreme notoriety, especially because of its inclusion in GCSE syllabuses up and down the land for, for some time. We're going to be reading a scene when Duncan's murder, which was committed by Macbeth under the influence of 
the witches and perhaps Lady Macbeth as well, when that murder is coming to light, when people have realized what's happened and the whole um, court, the whole Scottish court in Macbeth's castle is in a bit of a state of disarray. And one aspect of this disarray is Lady Macbeth uh, announcing that she's you know, obviously a bit upset about this, even though she, she was in on the act. Let's read a bit from this, see what we think, and then talk about it. And then we'll go on to Phantom after that. So I think, Leo, you're going to read the parts of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth. I'm going to read the other parts and we're going to introduce the speakers. So it's, it's not going to be a simulated dramatic reading, but you will get all the words, which is the most important part. You'll be, the audience will be utterly heartbroken. They're missing out on my Lady Macbeth that I hear was the talk of Stoke-on-Trent in 2002. Yeah, you know, just send them Googling. For <laughs> Leo Cookman, Stoke-on-Trent, Lady Macbeth, 2002. <laughs> and I'm sure the results will be great. Do you want to take us away? Yep. So Lady Macbeth enters on the scene. What's the business that such a hideous trumpet calls to parley the sleepers of this house? Speak, speak. Macduff says... O oh, gentle lady, tis not for you to hear what I can speak. The repetition in a woman's ear would murder as it fell. Enter Banquo. O oh, Banquo, Banquo, our royal master's murdered. Lady Macbeth says, woe, alas, what in our house? Banquo says, too cruel anywhere. Dear Duff, I prithee contradict thyself and say it is not so. Then enter Macbeth and Lennox. Uh, Macbeth says, had I but an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed time. For from this instant, there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys, renown and grace is dead. The wine of life is drawn and the mereless, mere less is left this vault to brag of. Oh, the, mere, the mere lease. Oh, lease. Like, the rubbish bits at the bottom of a bottle of wine. Uh, in comes Malcolm and Donald Bain. Donald Bain says, what is amiss? Macbeth, you are, and you do not note. The spring, the head, the fountain of your blood is stopped. The very source of it is stopped. Macduff says, your royal father's murdered. Malcolm says, oh, by whom? Lennox. Those of his chamber, as it seemed, had done it. Their hands and faces were all badged with blood. So were their daggers, which, unwiped, we found upon their pillows. They stared and were distracted. No man's life was to be trusted with them. Macbeth says, oh, yet I do repent me of my fury that I did kill them. Macduff says, wherefore did you so? Macbeth who can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in a moment? No man. The expedition of my violent love outrun the pauser reason. Here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood and his gashed stabs looked like a breach in nature for ruin's wasteful entrance. There the murderers, steeped in the colours of their trade, their daggers unmannerly breached with gore, who could refrain, that had, a, that had a heart to love, and in that heart, courage to make loves known. 
makes love known. To which Lady Macbeth says, help me hence ho. Macduff says, look to the lady. We're going to leave it there on that, that funny line, look to the lady, because in that scene, which is act two, scene three, that's um, the last thing we hear from Lady Macbeth. I think in your version of the play, it does say they carry Lady Macbeth out. That, that isn't necessarily in the original text, but she, that's a, a perfectly reasonable um, performance decision that could be made because she doesn't speak. She could be carried out because perhaps she's fainted. Perhaps she's pretending to faint. Um, you know, some interesting questions it raises. It's also a repeat of that line. Macduff says, look to the lady, then Banquo says, look to the lady. So the, the impression I get is someone deal with her is what is being said by the important men. We, we could have carried on reading a little bit more. So yeah, look to the lady, deal with her. Um, and I'm glad we read that long section out. I, I was a bit worried because actually, you know, the, the lines that Fanthorpe's going to focus on are really minute, which is one of the reasons I like her poem. Um, but you've got in there some quite famous bits of the play. And if we were analysing this section just without any kind of, um, uh, you know, particular direction, you could really easily focus on like Macbeth's speech, for example, where he talks about um, his silver the, skin laced with golden blood. Right, yeah, that's that's the one that I'm thinking of. Well, there's some famous lines in that one that like, uh, well, I know is famous, like steeped in the colours of their trade. That's a line I remember very well. Yeah, and like I think and Macbeth's general pronouncement that there's nothing serious in mortality, all is but toys. It's not necessarily famous, but that's kind of a, you know, that's the statement of the play, like everything's, everything's really got messed up. But in, the, in that context where there's some really big hitting lines and speeches going on, we've also got this really, you know, really provocative role to, to Lady Macbeth, who, um, can be read in so many different ways. And I think as we're gonna see later on, Macbeth is a really condensed play, maybe even more so than other Shakespeare plays. Every line counts and every little word, you know, you can get something out of. So maybe our best thing to do is sort of just go back to the start of what we looked at and start thinking about Lady Macbeth's role in this scene. So there's already been a little bit of kerfuffle and she says, what's the business that such a hideous trumpet calls to parley the sleepers of this house? Speak, speak. So what do you think about that as an entrance line, Leo? Well, it, it sets up her, and we'll, we'll come to the, this more later on, I suppose, but it sets up Lady Macbeth's role in that whole scene as being, oh, whatever could have happened? Oh no, look, this sort of, uh, the falsity of her uh, surprise that this has happened and um, taking on the the role of this, of the the Lord's wife or whatever to, to be sort of, what, uh, why are you waking us all up? This sort of very, um, uh, deliberate ignorance of like, this is, the, because the, the the stage direction I have in my cheap copy is um, bell rings uh, and then enter Lady Macbeth. And 
So the idea being that there is a noise or something, or or at least an alarm has been rung prior to that. So it's this oh wiping sleep from her eyes sort of. Yeah. Okay. I like I like that point. This so it's feign, feigned ignorance, isn't it? And um, you know, it just makes me think of the late the later role that uh, Macbeth forces on her, where he says, um, "Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, tilt thou do applaud." the deed um so she's got to be ignorant she's got to be innocent at this stage for lots of different reasons um sure and that's instantly part of her part of her performance what's the business right away um and maybe what i what i found interesting in these three lines to take them apart is that you've got the emphasis on the house, so that's locating Lady Macbeth in the you know, domestic sphere, even if this is a grand 11th century castle, at some, at some level Lady Macbeth's uh, a diligent housewife, or at least presented as that. Um, you know, that's her thing, the sleepers of the house, that's what she's worried about. Um, but that's woken by a hideous trumpet. What's the business that such a hideous trumpet calls to parley the sleepers of the house? And already I feel like it's, it, it, it feels like the approach to kind of Lady Macbeth as a character falls apart a little bit because I agree as a character, then I totally agree with your assessment that it's feigning ignorance. But why on earth would you start talking about a hideous trumpet? There is, that's, that's a metaphor, right? That's a metaphor for the bell. No one's been, no one's been blowing a trumpet, <laughs> blowing a trumpet. Um, but that's a metaphor. So that's when, you know, this, 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 the, the play presents itself as a poem, maybe not as a, as a work of drama and certainly not as a, um, a work of, you know, true human life. Um, literature can never be. Um, but the hideous trumpet, yeah, okay, it's a metaphor, but uh, as confirmed by my my footnote, but that does make us think of uh, the apocalypse. The, the 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 trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. Um, from it's from yeah, and uh, reference in prophetic moments of Isaiah. You know that that's a world level. Sorry, and not just a world, a universe level um, reflection. So. You've got her worrying about this hideous trumpet. The end of the world is coming. It's as if the end of the world is here. But she's also worried about the sleepers of the house. So it's like two, two totally different registers for me in two different lines. She's laying it on thick is basically what... <laughs> laying, she's laying it on thick. And maybe, you know, I was interested in like you know I brought draw attention to those lines from Macbeth where he says like there's nothing serious in mortality or there's a breach in nature but that scale has already been announced by Lady she isn't necessarily confined to this sphere um her sense of the problem is is as big as anyone else's and it's a a way of making it seem as big as it is about to become almost if she is ignorant of it, then she's already aware of how, if it is such a hideous trumpet, such as Gabriel's or something, then she, it, she's implying it signals that it, it is as 
awful uh, an act that she's about to discover or that has happened. And then, but then on the other hand, so if, if we do take a kind of character approach to her at this moment, then, you know, we can take it relatively seriously. Um, but what does Macduff say? Oh, lady. Tis not for you to hear what I can speak. The repetition in a woman's ear would murder as it fell. He said, patting her on the head as he said it. So gentle lady. So it feels like gentle. Interesting that it's, it's both, you know, maybe maybe a, a statement of her, her class superiority, maybe. Um, again, possibly, you know, that wouldn't be an 11th century word, but it would be a 16th or 17th century word for, for gentility. But also, you know, obviously, uh, delicacy as well um so it's it's uh it's a sort of double-edged sword that it's saying you know oh it's not for an aristocratic lady to worry about this but actually it's no that sorry that's not what it's saying it's it's saying it's not for a weak woman to be worried about this such a gentle lady right it's not for you to hear what i can speak so it's interesting it's sort of interesting to have Macduff in this position of power of knowledge but it's not for her so already you know like that bit of Macbeth which I just thought about earlier you know be innocent of the knowledge is it be innocent of the knowledge dearest Chuck or be ignorant of the knowledge I'll have to check that out um that seems to be Macduff's automatic reaction so maybe you know um Macbeth's a statement of that later is kind of a there's something conventional about it within the world of the play you know, that making her innocent of the knowledge that's Macduff's impulse as well I just like that Shakespeare's oh I mean you know <laughs> what can you say about Shakespeare that is, hasn't been said but he's so good with just that sort of ironic like it's it's just very self-aware. I just think it's really nice that like he's made uh he makes Lady Macbeth clearly, you know, feigning this ignorance. But equally, Macduff's contribution is that, oh, poor you poor thing, you don't want to hear about this when she was privy to it anyway. And it's Shakespeare is on a slightly meta level saying, well, no, she's like this is bullshit. Of course, like she's not too gentle to hear this. She was, she had a hand in it, and it's a, a it's just a very neat bit of um, irony and juxtaposition where it's it, he's deliberately saying that that's exactly not what she is, despite Macduff saying this is what she is. <laughs> she's not a gentle lady, or that his definition of a gentle lady is not what she is. What do you think about his statement that? The repet so the repetitions in a woman's ear would murder as it fell. Fall, in that case, I guess that must mean once the words get into your ear, what the fall is. What do you think about that? Like, is that just the kind of restatement of her, her gentleness, her delicacy? Yeah, I think it's, it's like, to you know, to, I think he's saying at, at the repetition as in to repeat what has happened or to to restate what has happened um in a woman's ear poor little woman's ear would would kill her would you know would lay her low 
if as she heard it um as a as a literal translation i suppose but the again it's just that sort of oh you you will i i i almost cannot speak it therefore you should not hear it almost it feels like he's saying i would not want to say it repeat it and yeah i I appreciate your emphasis on the woman there because it's it's like is he saying that repeating it is fine for a bloke you know any i can hear it okay but for a woman it would actually it would literally kill you it would literally kill you if you heard this if you heard that someone had been murdered you'd die too and i wouldn't want to do that to you poor little thing so sort of like one of the things we'll maybe bring up later is sort of well just to make a side glance to is the way this text might be approached in sort of school or you know exam contexts and one of the things that you know, frustrates me a little bit in those contexts is sometimes talking about like the historical understanding of gender roles because that's something you can kind of just say anything and then say oh it was like that in the olden days oh they it isn't necessarily based on like any really sincere investigation of historical context but I feel like in that in that moment we maybe have got a a statement of an almost ostentatiously small-minded um, assumption about, about gender roles that Macduff believes she's just going to be too weak to take anything at all. So the, so the, the, the theme of her weakness, which is, or perceived weakness and strength, which is you know, important for a character, is, is established in, not just within her character, but in other characters of the play. This is complete tangent, right? But there's there's a there's a poem by John Donne, where he talks about a, a legal a lawyer, who uh, who woos in language of the pleas and bench, who uses like legal terminology to to flirt with with women, and he says um, words words that would tear the tender labyrinth of a soft maid's ear. Worse, worse than ten Slavonians scolding, worse than when winds in our ruined abbeys roar. I don't know. I'd love to know, like all examples of from this period of, like what is perceived to be offensive to a woman's ear. So for Dunn, like it would be if you if you use this crass legal terminology to try and, you know, get get off with a woman that's going to really upset her her, her hearing for, for Shakespeare it's if you talk about murder it's going to be bad as well I'd like I haven't done the work on that but I'd I'd, I'd, I'd love to and I just wanted to to read those lines that I actually got off by heart but is it that but I like I, I like the the fact is that it's like yes there could be some sort of glib d- discussion of like oh, that's what they were like you know but but what was Larkin's line? Sex wasn't invented until 1963 or whatever it was. So, it's, you know, sexism didn't stop until before 2010. So anything before that was sex. So, that, yeah, sure, you can be glib and just say, oh, well, that's what it was like. But the point is Shakespeare knows that this is, that Macduff's wrong. Like, the there's he's not written this in the, the way that, that you can instantly just go, oh, that's what they were like back then. It's like, yeah, but they knew. So, so Macduff is being deliberately painted as someone who is either incredibly patronising or is 
perhaps quite simple in the fact that he's like maybe he's more offended and upset by the murder than Lady Macbeth is and he's his sensitive nature is coming through rather than the other than it be anything to do with Lady Macbeth or something and there's a I mean there's another there's another layer of this of Macduff's misogyny I don't want to get too distracted by Macduff because we've got an important Lady Macbeth to do as well but um it's 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 his wife and children who are brutally murdered later in the play and and he has a very emotional response to that um you know so in some ways he's you know he's he can be easily seen as kind of the good guy um, and you know in some respects is the good guy um but yeah for 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 gender stereotyping and assumptions he's not necessarily uh in the right here no he's not in the right here but let's okay let's have a look so we, we we've got Macduff saying that about women's ear it did murder you. Then in comes Banquo, um, and he says, "Oh, Banquo, Banquo, our royal master's murdered." So that that's quite funny. I find that quite funny because he's just said, "Oh, I couldn't possibly tell you, Lady Macbeth." I. But then suddenly <laughs> Banquo comes in and he starts shouting it, and like, okay, so obviously um, the the punctuation and stuff is different from edition to to edition, but like, "Oh, Banquo, Banquo." That's it doesn't have to be yeah. shouted, but like no, it's quite shouty. You you would wail that I would have thought as someone who's who has done Amdram and things like that. <laughs> any amateur dramatics production of this would be he would cling to Banquo's the hem of Banquo's gar garment or something and weep. Oh Banquo! I just love that it's the next line. I think and this does happen sometimes at those immediate turns and. I've, I can't really imagine it presented in a comic way, but um, I do find that quite funny. So our royal master's murdered, immediately gives it up. And then Lady Macbeth, okay, she doesn't die, even Macbeth Macduff said she would. Woe alas, what in our house? Banquo replies, too cruel anywhere. So what in our house? And that's gonna become an important line for us. What do you make of this, Leo? It's, it, it's, well, it's that instant, um, well, it's, well, alas, oh no, isn't this terrible? And then this, again, another immediate turn to, and in our house, what, in our house? Well, I mean, it could happen anywhere, but what, in our house? To which Banquo is, well, it's too cruel anywhere, but it's Lady Macbeth's immediate focus on her own home or, or her, the responsibility that comes with that being in her, her house and it's it's so weird because we're sort of trying to think of you know we're trying to think of what these words mean and lady macbeth is putting on a performance this moment we know but there's something almost instinctive about her response which makes it difficult to read you know the the, the way she's these lines are coming out they don't sound particularly calculated it's it's such an odd thing to say or at least you know from, from our point of view like an odd thing to say um and i'm just sort of trying to see where the emphasize emphasis falls there so i i agree with you. that's my, my first response is like yours to say our so our house is the key thing there that um she's worried about it this bad thing happening within 
our private little community, our private little bourgeois world that we're rapidly trying to create through Shakespeare and other things as well. But is there is there an element of this being in in a in a house in a um, in a place where we dwell? But I mean, in, wherever you put the the emphasis in that line, because it's only four words, but it's it. Uh, I mean, even if it was in our castle or something like that did like uh or or as you say you know some bourgeois home it's the fact she's referring to it as a house i mean i don't know the lexicon back then or what the actual meaning of or what would have been implied with the the word house whether it meant what we think of it in middle class suburbia these days or you know I imagine it probably would have been a grander castle or something like that okay. where they're staying. I'm also just well. thinking about like what if you emphasised, say for example, in, because, um, you know that they, they just the lads have just come home from the battlefield, right? Where where all sorts of murder was happening, all sorts of swords, smoking and bloody execution. A death happening outside the house wouldn't be particularly surprising happening inside the house would be kind of surprising surely when you're outside of what outside of this, this this battle between the Norwegians and the, the Scots surely that's where so it's like what in how we can you can you emphasize that in our house in our house that doesn't that doesn't sound like a very good way of reading it but if you think of it I, I'm just trying to give I'm just trying to give a, a few different versions because it, it, it is loaded um, that there's a shock that it could have happened inside. And I'm, I'm guessing raising that because like our, I think our inclination is to say, oh, in our house, all oh, right, she's obsessed with the domestic sphere. Okay, that's Lady Macbeth playing the part of a woman, playing the part of a housewife. Um, but that's, you know, are we, are, we, are we just sort of imposing that on the text? Is that our own misogyny that's doing that? Perhaps. Uh, the, the other thing is it, it could just be, <clears throat> um, Part of the, the writer in me maybe thinks it's maybe just an, uh, a lead into um, uh, Banquo's line, uh, just uh, for him to be able to say, too cruel anywhere. Like it happened in our house, but it's too cruel anywhere. So we're just talking about Banquo's response, too cruel anywhere. And anywhere, you know, that could be any house, it could be inside the house, outside the house. So it's, it's interesting that, that Lady Macbeth, she's introducing um, the idea that the, the, the house offers a kind of specific sphere that's uh, different to outside the house, and maybe introducing our house as one particularly important example of that sphere, as distinct from other people's houses. Um, Banquo isn't interested in those distinctions. It's true, too cruel anywhere. So I don't, I don't necessarily see Lady Macbeth's line there as kind of being reductive. Um, it's, it's appropriate to her performance as, as in, you know, in the role that she's meant to be occupying. But um, it feels like, you know, like Macduff, Banquo's immediate response is to sort of give her a bit of a a crit you know a, a bit of a slice and say too, too cruel anywhere maybe it's understanding maybe he's being nice 
but that would be patronizing as well that you know you don't understand you don't you can't understand the cruelty of this um maybe that yeah I'm, I'm just trying to sort of unpack those words a little bit and maybe when she said at the start of the seat you know this a few it was only a few lines ago she said you know such a hideous trumpet you know she's someone with a sense of the apocalyptic um yet here Banker is saying she doesn't know about cruelty I don't know but look so we could she doesn't say a lot in that scene later on she she says she says help me hence ho in fact we've heard most of her lines later on when when Macbeth reveals that he he murdered the murderers the so-called the the accused guard to who, who murder murder Duncan um she says help me hence ho and uh, maybe faints maybe doesn't faint or maybe collapses or something uh, she's in a bit of a jam and then then leaves a few lines later. So I just feel like what an amazing presence she has in the scene that it's so, her role seems so important, but actually the number of lines is, is really minute. She is a presence more than she is just, um, than she's just spouting lines, than she is a foil for sort of uh, delivering lines or setting up, you know, grand speeches by Macbeth or whatever. She's a much more felt presence and in the room yeah and maybe if i was if i was trying to explain to someone about like gender roles then i would actually go for this scene and i would sort of look at the dynamics um all right but listen we 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 we've, we've looked at like about 10 lines um let's have a look at ua fanthorpe um because i think that's going to be interesting to see what she what she has to say we're going to look at UA Fanthorpe and how she responds to this tiny little bit of the play uh, from 1995. Maybe it's worth noting, of course, that Lady Macbeth has been a figure of fascination for a long, long time. Um, um, that's not a reception history that we've really unpicked in the course of this, uh, this set of preparation for this podcast. Um, but there's all sorts of comments through the 19th century, 20th century, all kinds of performances of this role, you know, which we may end up referencing as we go along, because we obviously have seen some of them, but we, we really don't have the complete view that some people do have. Very recently, or at least in the last 15 years, um, Lady Macbeth has, has received some particular interest from people sort of filling out the history, rewriting Shakespeare, and I say that in a positive way, you know, I think that's a good thing to do, uh, in things like Susan Fraser King's novel, Lady Macbeth, 2008, uh, Lisa Klein's novel, uh, Lady Macbeth's Daughter, 2009, uh, David Greig's play, Dunsinane, 2010, um, offers a particular reading of Lady Macbeth. So there's loads of material out there um but i think fanthorpe is you know definitely doing something original interesting unique um and uh, those other examples only show that this is an important vein it doesn't diminish um fanthorpe's work at all um so when we talk about lady macbeth and her significance for the play um it is kind of easy to get trapped into what I feel is like 
GCSE style approaches, school style approaches, where we might ask things like, is Lady Macbeth a feminist? Uh, is she a strong woman? Is she nasty or nice? That's sort of what it comes down to, is like she strong and nice, or is she weak and nasty? Or is she strong and nasty, or is she weak and nice, weak and nasty? Um, some combination of those things that kind of emphasize the character. Um, I do kind of find those a bit frustrating. I think there's other ways of addressing gender in the play. Um, and I think Fanthought maybe suggests some ways of addressing gender and thinking about gender in the play that are perhaps, um, you know, take us out of those questions, make us think a bit more widely and set us going to do some more reading, not, not less reading. And maybe that's something I like about it. So let's have a look at this bit of, bit of writing. And this time I'm going to be Lady Macbeth, aren't I? Okay, do you want to, do you want to sort of get us going the title than that? So it's, the poem is called What in Our House? And it has a little epigram at the top that just says, the play Macbeth is remarkably short and it may be there has been some cutting. And that's by J.G. Collingwood. And then the poem starts with Macduff. Oh, Banquo, Banquo, our royal masters murdered. Lady Macbeth replies, Whoa, alas, what, in our house? And Banquo says, too cruel anywhere. Lady Macbeth. That's not the point. Who cares for anywhere? Mere woolly-minded liberals. But here is where I am, my house, my place, my world, my fortress against time and dirt and things. Here I deploy my garrison of soap and like all housewives, just about contrive to outmaneuver chaos. Not a job for men. What man alive will grovel scrubbing at floorboards to mop up the blood? No doubt there's blood, or if not, sick or shit or other filth that women have to handle. Banquo says, oh, gentle lady. Lady Macbeth says, only women know the quantity of blood there is that waits to flood, flood from bodies, how it soaks and seeps in wood and wool and walls and stains forever. No disinfectant, I can tell you, Banquo, so strong as blood. Then the implicit slur upon my hospitality. Was Duncan suffocated? Something wrong with the pillows? Was his throat cut? Check the carving knives. Poison? Blame the cuisine. I wish to heaven, Banquo, he died in your house. Your wife would tell you how I feel. Enter Malcolm and Donald Bain. Donald Bain, what is amiss? Macduff says, your royal father's murdered. And Malcolm says, oh, by whom? And Lady Macbeth. Such donish syntax at so grave a moment. How hard to frame the first and random thought detection snuffs at to seem innocent and psycholinguistically correct at once. And my best bedroom too. So I like, I like that because I feel like there's loads of sort of cheap jokes you could have. And it, it isn't like, it isn't like really, really predictable. Like this could be written by kind of, you know, reasonably talented year 10 student but but sorry you, you could I, I, that, that person could write a version of this in quite a cliched way but i don't think this really goes in for for cliches or exactly what you'd expect um 
so yeah maybe that's why i sort of thought right away that it was worth worth looking at as you say it's that sort of the the um the the as you the gcse approach to is like is lady macbeth a feminist the you could like you say a, a year 10 or something would go well yeah she's probably more concerned about her like pillows or something and that would be the response of that poet whereas that's actually whereas initially that is what this sets out to be is like what would a, a real housewife's idea seem to be i think there's more to it than that yeah I, okay and that, and that and that's maybe what i'm sort of getting at by saying like you know it pushes us on towards more reading so um we can we can go into to every line in a bit of detail i think but by by talking about the soap the washing the cleaning that needs to be done it speaks to the sort of um you know the 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 the, the limited world in which uh renaissance women had to to occupy um and it reminds me actually i'm going to i'm going to put this in there cuz i just remembered like it's it, it, do you like loretta lynn's song ones on the oh you know yeah. one? yes um I hadn't even I, thought of that. I've always found a really useful um, song, but just think, um, you know, and Loretta Lynn, politically, not one that I really go for. But um, if, you're, if you're trying to explain or, or persuade someone towards a, a political position, you've sort of got to bear in mind, you know, Loretta Lynn's position or, or, or the, the one that she adopts in that song, where she's... Uh, you know, on the one hand, talking about all the amazing progressive achievements for women in the 60s. But on the other hand, I'm just going to quote it. Here in Topeka, the rain is a falling, the faucet is a dripping and the kids are a balling. One of them are toddling and one is a crawling and one's on the way. So however much there's, uh, and in fact, each each chorus does something a little bit different, like um, the screen doors are banging, the coffee's boiling over and the washing, the washing needs are hanging. So it's like all this stuff that's going on. How can you possibly think about liberation when you've actually got these real material needs going on? Anyway, yeah, that's, that's a useful context for us. And also, you know, did you get a strong impression of this? Whether like, you know, this Lady Macbeth, is she a nice one or is she a nasty one? Is she a strong one or is she a weak one? I think, you know, it's clearly she's... Fanthorpe's Lady Macbeth is a strong figure, um, but is there any is there a moral judgment on that here, whether whether positive or negative? No, I th and I think she's paint like she. If anything, it makes her more. Um, well, it's not more human or something, but it it sort of it complicates her far more interestingly r rather than just saying she's is she nasty or nice, because uh, it it sort of bespeaks. Because number one, she's actually kind of reprimanding, if you are taking it from that sort of feminist perspective, she's reprimanding Banquo and Macduff and things for being patronising. But equally, she's not um, the she's the, the the language she uses is also sort of like the, the, I focus on woolly-minded liberals, which when I was a kid was like growing up in a conservative area in a literal sense it was a conservative constituency it that was kind of a uh that was a, a strong insult to call someone a woolly-minded liberal mm. was um it, and so it, the just the use of the phrase to me implies that she is of a more conservative bent anyway whether politically or or literally or 
um, ideologically or whatever. And it, uh, just little phrases like that, um, I think, or, or sort of words or phrases that might be dismissed seem to be uh, to complicate her more and to uh, not just paint her as, because a lot of people agree with uh, those, you know, conservative mindsets and things like that. So there's a, I think it complicates her more than it does just paint her wholly as, you know, she's that evil wife that corrupted uh, Macbeth, or she's this great noble, uh, strong feminine character that got what she wanted sort of thing. It's, it's more complexity to it than that, or nuance yeah. at least. So, so, so saying something like, uh, but here is where I am, my house, my place, my world, my fortress against time and dirt and things. Here I employ, here I deploy my garrison of soap and like all housewives just about contrive to outmaneuver chaos. So here is where I am. So firmly rooted in the house, you know, she can't be going roving out to battles like Macbeth and Banquo, even if, you know, she does get those letters like at the start of Act 1, Scene 5, even though she, you know, she's in touch with what's going on, um, you know, like plenty of, or maybe not plenty, but some uh, aristocratic women in this period, um, she, is, she is circumscribed to that world. Um, and he, here, here is italicized in the in the book. So, but here is where I am. Um, so, it it feels like there's a thing you know, that that Thandalf's trying to create a real sort of strength of conviction around that location. So, whereas I sort of tried to to read the line in our house in a few different ways, in in this reading, it seems to be both in. <laughs> and our house that are emphasized. So it's important that it's in the house and it's important it's our house um, because that's sort of the, the limit of the world, but she's not seeking to go beyond that world. No, she doesn't think, or, or she, she has no desire to think beyond it. Or she's not able to think beyond it because she's so busy mopping stuff up. Um, and I like, you know, sort of when we, you know, so, so a line like here, I deploy my garrison of soap, um, you know, suggestive of the, the military language and the military events that's happened elsewhere in the play. Um, you know, she's deploying soap, she's not deploying soldiers. And this idea that she's trying, she's contriving to outmaneuver chaos. Um, so if, it feels, if, it just feels like such an odd voice here because she, this is the figure who, who knows she is introducing chaos and who's claiming that her role is to outmaneuver chaos. Yeah, what do you think about that? So like, yeah, so she, she knows, she knows what's going on. So why is she making the claim at this moment that she's, her role is in outmaneuvering chaos? Well, that's what's interesting because it's, again, initially it could just be this, um, that's what parochial housewives do is that it is, as you say, the washing's on the line, the kids are a ball in, that's, that's the chaos that must be outmaneuvered, but uh, the it, it equally it's to be understood as this is performative anyway. So she in herself is aware it's performative. Um, so she, it, like 
it, it's a role in and of itself to outmaneuver chaos. That's the role of the, the housewife as it was, quote unquote. But equally, she is using that role as a role further. It is, she is deliberately performing this that she, you know, so it, what it means is like, as you say, in that it's a weird tone of voice is she actually sort of putting her hand to her head and going, oh God, I've got to clean this up in all seriousness um, because she will have to, or maybe the, the servants would, <laughs> I don't know, but, or is she saying it as a, um, because she, that's what's expected to be said. So she's got to say it because that's how it's understood in that sort of role it's a as you as you say it's a very strange tone of voice but again it, it complicates her further yeah I almost like I, I this isn't this isn't a feeling I often get with reading poetry or plays or anything but I do want someone I feel I want to hear like a rec recording of Fanthorpe reading this like as dramatically as she imagined it I feel like I'm, there's a lot I'm not quite catching just because of the sort of the quite unusual voice that's being created. And, it, you know, maybe it's worth mentioning here. Um, I don't I don't know a lot about Fanthorpe's influences, um, you know, what, what she was reading and really inspired her, but she was a fan of Browning. Um, you know, she did like the, that, um, you know, dramatic monologue form where, where you're, you know, um, presenting a flawed but interesting character through their own words. And just thinking about that, like, so one of the one of the bit one of the kind of the jokes in here, one of the wisecracks, is when she says, you know, what man alive will grovel scrubbing at floorboards to mop up the blood? And she suddenly realizes, oh no, I can't mention there's blood because obviously um, no one I haven't been told about that yet. Classic sort of detective fiction trope. Oh, I didn't mention the grotting. <laughs> um there's a that joke comes up in a film called Sleuth from 1972 that I watched. Oh yes, I've yeah, seen that one. yeah. <laughs> so silly. Anyway, um, so it's the same joke. It's a, and it's a, it's a reasonable joke. Uh, no doubt there's blood. Surely there's blood, or if not, sick or shit or other filth that women have to handle. And so her first thing is to sort of diminish it and say, no doubt there's blood. Okay, surely it's going to be a, a, a murder with uh, with a dagger or something. Surely. Um, but then the second gesture is to say only women know the quantity of blood there is that waits to flood from bodies. So it's like she she avoids it, but then she just leans into it and says, you guys don't know, you men wouldn't know blood if it hit you around the head. And it is hitting them around the head at this moment. Mm. It's also that one of like she very much recontextualizes blood or, or Fanthorpe is deliberately recontextualizing blood as a not just a nuisance but it is you know it is a funk like she mentioned sick or shit like she puts it in as baser terms as that that's what you know no doubt there's blood i've got to clean this shit up literally yeah. whereas it's to macbeth it is uh you know it's uh it's golden blood it is not um it's not just it's not blood it's not just a, the material of life it is not a nuisance it is but to, to macbeth this is the blue blood of the the royal this is golden blood on silver skin you know yeah that you know what that's a i think that's a really really perceptive connection so that, yeah that's kind of that's the kind of line that you would never study for gcse because it's just like what is he talking about so just to remind listeners that's macbeth he's obviously now like you know he's turning into this monster uh, and he said here lay duncan his silver skin laced with his golden blood 
and his gashed stabs looked like a breach in nature for his wasteful entrance. And what's striking there, or at least I've, one of the comments I've read about that is, it, it's almost as if he's, he's describing an image of the, the murder, not the murder itself. So it's almost as if there's a medium, uh, you know, an intermediate barrier of some kind between Macbeth and the site of, of Duncan, um, even though you know, Macbeth's done the murder. Um, but I, yeah, I love the idea that, that blood is something in this play that flows and it's problematic and it stains and it makes everyone guilty and everything else. But in that first glimpse of the blood, it's, it's statuesque, it's mental, it's not got the reality of blood that Lady Macbeth knows in an instant and will go on to characterise blood in the... Once once that damn spot out is it her who says that yeah, out, yeah, damn, out spot? damn spot so and, it, and that's the point is it's always this sort of like well it's bloody it's a bloody nuisance it's you know i, I want to scrub it clean like whether for psychological purposes or for actual practical purposes that this is a you know this is the stuff of life this is the you know actually the the ordinary because she seems to know that it takes a lot to scrub out blood, right? So she, if she's saying, you know, only women know how it, how much is in the bodies, but also how only women know how it soaks and seeps and there is nothing, no dis disinfectant as strong as it. So, yet. so okay, so that's the, mo the, the movement in the passage is sort of to mention the blood and then say, okay, no doubt there's blood. Sure, you know, that, that, that old joke, leaning out. But then she leans in and says, well... Only, you know, I'm the person to know about um, that blood because I'm because I menstruate because I give birth. Um, but then the movement again is to sort of move out once again when she says, "Then the implicit slur upon my hospitality and lists a number of possible murder methods." Was Duncan suffocated? Something wrong with the pillows? Was his throat cut? Check the carving knives. Poison, blame the cuisine. So whatever the murder implement was, a slur upon her hospitality. Um, and I, you know what, I think, I, I really do feel that's implicit in that line, what in our house, you know, those four words that Lady Macbeth Shakespeare says, uh, I do hear that right there. Um, so it's fun, I, I just find it quite amusing that, UA Fanthorpe's able to sort of bring that out so effectively or bring it out, whether or not effectively is, is up to up to the listeners at home. But it's she it is there, yeah. It is definitely there. It's and it's it, that that's the funniest line, is where it's like the just the, the line itself, it's an implicit like slur upon my, upon my hospitality. Is funny in and of itself, but then to actually list the uh, what those implicit slurs would be—that it would be, you know, the the wrong pillows, or that it's my carving knives, or it's that I poisoned him with my bad food—is yeah. Well, no, it's 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 priceless. It's a very good way of drawing out that sense. And then and then kind of rounding off that little bit of the speech by saying, uh, you know, I wish. I wish to heaven Banquo he died in your house. Your wife would tell you how I feel. And of course, Banquo's wife doesn't feature in the play at all. Banquo's um, son, Fleance, does. And Banquo's offspring 
are like apps that's like a fundamental part of the play like generating generations mrs banquet doesn't feature she's not a part of it the person who's creating this line of king stretching down to king james in in uh, 1603 1603 whatever year the play was produced he was king of england in 1603 um she doesn't come into the question at all um so so by okay by giving lady macbeth that speech you know this full speech is important but then by referencing your wife Banquo referencing the other wives the other women who are just totally removed from the play um it's it just it just draw, does this work of drawing attention to the way that this play of universal human significance or we might say universal human human significance actually relies on the exclusion of like all women, you know, you've got your witches, you've got your Lady Macbeth, you've got Lady Macduff, you've got Hecate, but the the historical contextual um, lives of women, along with lots of other things, but especially women are just totally excluded from the play. So that universal statement of whatever, of ambition, of sin, of evil, whatever, it becomes something that's not relevant for everyone. It is only relevant if you're if you're talking about men, and that's maybe sort of the, the, the you know the simple moral of the story. And I, I'm even though that line, "Your wife would tell you how I feel," um, which is a nice statement of a kind of a female community, which certainly doesn't exist outside of the, the witches in the play. Um, which you know, let, let's just leave that for the moment. Um, your wife would know. I feel you know. It, it, I think Shakespeare's maybe got a particular worry about female community or, or you know women sort of interacting with each other. I think of something like Measure for Measure, the idea of Isabella going into a nunnery. Like, oh, Shakespeare can't stand that. You know, instantly that has to be destroyed. So there's these 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 little glimpses that we get from Lady Macbeth of a wider world that's being excluded, but. Fanthorpe's kind of doing a neat trick where her her padding out also makes glances to another wider world that's being excluded. Uh, and so this doesn't just fill in the gaps, but it it fills in one little gap and gestures to, you know, a massive... Much larger yeah, gaps. Yeah, massive expanses of gaps that are just missing from that literature. Um, you know... Is a completely correct observation and has to be borne in mind with any reading of the play. But look, Leah, what do you think? I feel like we're sort of coming up to about an hour. I've really enjoyed looking at this poem. Maybe we should just make a few closing comments now to sort of wrap this up for our readers. Well, there's the the bit at the end. I do think is is worth mentioning just because how it's it's very explicit in it's just the last couple of lines, but how she's uh again it's another criticism of it it's not just it, it, the whole poem isn't just about oh well it's all about um women's roles in the home or something as you say in, in the sort of the more glib dismissive reading of it it's a, there's more, far more um it, it's criticizing the general tone of other people or like you know such donish syntax when <laughs> when you're told your father's dead and it's just someone saying oh by who <laughs> oh dear that's terrible who did that <laughs> sort of they 
there's criticism either implicitly of Shakespeare or of uh, or just of the characters or so like it's again it's more sophisticated than perhaps uh, may be judged immediately. But I, like, I actually I, I, I like your point there that so oh, that that phrase oh by whom okay and again it maybe just points up points us to sort of remembering that you know we're not looking like at a, a true representation of human looking at a poem and and, and and but that line draws attention to that and we need to sort of you know deal with it and not not just ignore it um but whereas you know my response usually is to kind of respond to it would be obviously to respond to this critically as a reader and in my, my teaching you know if I was writing about this I'd say oh Malcolm's response is you know very pedantic syntax oh by whom you know he doesn't express loads of emotion I like the way that Fanthorpe sort of chosen instead of like I would do writing an essay about it she's responded to it by putting these words in Lady Macbeth's mouth and her kind of being a little bit outraged to use this pedantic syntax and and how that you know shows the difficulty of, of actually making a, a proper response to to something so so terribly tragic whereas she's got the syntax down that's the point like she's like He's he's just gone. Oh, by whom? Whereas what in our house is far more appropriate as more psycho psycho linguistically correct, as she puts it. She's OK. So it's woe, alas, what in our house? So woe, alas. Oh, you're shocked. Oh, no, it's terrible. And, only... and in our house. <laughs> whereas Malcolm, oh, by whom? And, you know, next time I see a performance this play, which I inevitably will, I will be really looking at this scene. I'm just thinking, you know, I guess Malcolm could be going, could be doing all sorts of things with that. Oh, you know, you could really ham that up. Um, there's so many opportunities here. But listen, I, you know what? Like, I, I don't know why I like UA Fanthorpe. Like, I'm not sure, you know, everyone I know would, would like agree that this is really, really interesting stuff. But I, I'm just enjoying her more and I want to read her more. And, I don't know whether this is like great, important, world-changing poetry, but I, I, I'm into it. I think she's, as you say, she's brought something out that other people haven't brought out, which in and of itself is important. So it's like, it, it's not something I would have, like, that's a line I would have, well, I probably did laugh at, but like in other performances I've seen or whatever, when I read it, that, just you know flies by night it's a it's a Shakespeareanism or something whereas she's brought out a far more in my own ignorance about these sorts of things has given me pause for not just that scene but generally I, I the understanding of Lady Macbeth's character or as you say a, a female community within that play that I was completely I would have just ignored anyway that no amount of Lady Macbeth's daughter or Dunsinane or any of these books would have uh, led me to to understand frankly I think there's there's more going on here than uh, than I think a lot of people might just glibly go yeah but girl power Lady Macbeth sort of stuff that doesn't always quite ring true for me okay yeah two things number one the official position of of the podcast is to support girl power um Numbers, but also um, the, the questions I sort of sometimes bring up to kind of frame these conversations that I'm, I'm not 
you know, absolutely committed to, but it's this idea of what do, do contemporary, modern, post-war, whatever poets get from Renaissance texts. And I think with, with, with most of the poets we've been looking at so far, you know, they, they, they found a little line or they found a poem that sort of helps to articulate something um, that's both personal, but also, you know, is, is in some sense traditional or conventional. And that's kind of uh, one use of the past. It feels like Santor's approaching it in a different way in that she sees in these texts um, opportunities and, and, and those gaps that need to be responded to. So the, the text seems to demand that extended rewriting and, and that quotation from jg collingwood at the start who who i don't know who that is um says the play is remarkably short and it may be that there has been some cutting you know a little a little bit of a joke there as well which i, I find again quite funny um it, you know but she sees an opportunity there to um you know, to, to dramatize these issues. And I think what, yeah, what you've said, Leo, in your last comment about this kind of uh, driving home the interest of those lines is, is really, really valuable because you wouldn't necessarily get that message from a really extended novel or a really extended essay, but you would get it from someone who's taken the opportunity to, to do this little scene. I don't know if we're gonna do more UA fan thought, but I've enjoyed talking about her today. and. I'd like to thank you very much, Leo, for coming on again. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. They say to have her hair done, Liz flies all the way to France. And Jackie's seen in a discotheque doing a brand new dance. And the White House social season should be glittering and gay. But here in Topeka, the rain is a-fallin', the faucet is a-drippin', and the kids are a-ballin'. One of them a-toddlin', and one is a-crawlin', and one's on the way.